listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hello, everyone. Thank you all for coming to our Belaboured End of the Year Live to talk about the Great Resignation, why everybody is quitting their jobs, leaving their jobs, going on strike, organizing their jobs, um, and generally realizing that work is bad, actually. Um, We wanted to do a sort of year-end show to look over this stuff because suddenly this was the year, again, that people discovered the workplace. I've been joking that everybody is a labor journalist now, um, but we have some of our favorite labor commentators here with us to talk about what's going on, how we can change it, how we can make it better. Um, Michelle's cat is our other guest. He has very intense commentary on the state of the workplace today. Um, Mostly he thinks that Michelle works too much. Yes. Cat is full of, full of class struggle. <laughs> He's very, very full of class struggle. Um, so, Michelle, I'll hand it over to you. Hello, everyone. Uh, and now I will introduce our illustrious panelists, uh, friends of the pod, and uh, people that uh, hopefully we'll hang out with in the flesh someday soon, but it's lovely to have them virtually this evening. Uh, Rebecca Collins-Given is Associate Professor of Labor Studies and Employment Relations in the School of Management and Labor Relations at Rutgers, and she has published widely on employment relations in healthcare, education, comparative welfare states, and labor studies. Uh, Her authored and edited books include Strike for the Common Good and Challenge to Change, Reforming Healthcare on the Front Line in the United States and the United Kingdom. She is president of Rutgers AAUP-AFT. And Connor Lewis is a writer and editor of the labor publication Strike Wave with bylines and publications like The Progressive, In These Times, The Baffler, and The Nation. He works as union staff in central Pennsylvania while completing his doctoral dissertation on working class politics in interwar Ireland. And don't harass him about when he's going to finish that dissertation. It's it's not going to get you anywhere. (laughs) And just one last thing before we get started. Um, We know everybody is asking for your money right now and also your holiday shopping. But if you are holiday shopping um, and you sign up to support us at patreon.com slash belabored, we have very cool belabored tote bags and Molly Crabapple worker prints that make excellent holiday gifts. I'm just saying. Um, Although, you know, according to the supply chain crisis, who knows when things will get shipped to you. Um, But you can give us a holiday gift by supporting us at Patreon. Um, So again, thanks so much for listening. And uh, Michelle, take it away with the first question. All right. So uh, we should start with a reality check. The media has been abuzz with these two terms that attempt to capture the current labor zeitgeist. And first, there was Striketober, which has now it's become strikes giving and various other iterations. <laughs> um, and that was referring to the perceived uptick in industrial actions during that month. Uh, and then there was the great resignation, um, which happened simultaneously, I guess. Uh, and that's shorthand for an unusually high rate of job quitting across the economy. So um, how close to reality are either of these terms uh, that the media has been throwing around? And do you think the media, you know, we, collectively. Uh, What do we get wrong in describing recent trends in worker activism? Uh, So Rebecca, I will throw this to you. Thank you. And thanks for having me. Um, I think when we think about, let's say, striketober bleeding into uh, wherever we are now, strike moss, I guess. um, (laughs) I think the way to contextualize is 
that the numbers aren't huge, but they're significant. And the significance is private sector workers going on strike. These strikes are very small compared to especially the 2018 teachers strikes. And it's um, a fraction of the size. But private sector workers going on strike is a big deal. Private sector workers rejecting tentative agreements that their union leadership negotiated is a big deal. Um, And so they're significant, even if they're not necessarily numerically significant. Um, I'd say that. And as for the Great Resignation, I think there's a lot more we need to learn about that. The Great Resignation is largely the great job turnover. Um, There are some people who are choosing or needing to stay home, people who maybe were able to retire or able to retire if they uh, tighten their budget a little bit and choosing to do so or people with, for example, childcare challenges who, who need to be home because they can't make it, make it work to stay in the labor market. But for the most part, these are people who are going across the street and getting a better job, not people who are, uh, as much as Sarah keeps trying, uh, dispensing with work altogether in their lives. Connor, what's it look like to you as an organizer? I agree entirely that you know, as as far as the wave of strikes, um, it's a little bit difficult to figure out exactly what the extent of it is, um, just because actually tracking strikes, figuring out what's happening is difficult, and uh, FMCS is trying to make it more difficult. For people who don't know, what is FMCS? Uh, Federal Mediation and Conciliation Services. Until recently, they basically tracked, uh, well, they continue to track, but they track um, work stoppages and they used to report them. And for some reason, when the Biden administration took office, they stopped doing so. So um, the Bureau of Labor Statistics only reports strikes involving over a thousand workers. And so there are a lot of strikes that happen below that threshold. And up until now, the only way to get that was through FMCS. Um, So it's hard to really kind of quantify exactly what's happening. And I think that in some ways, Striketober, as it was kind of anticipated to be with big, you know, open-ended work stoppages at Kaiser Permanente uh, with IATSE, never really quite materialized. Um, But there are a couple of things that I do think are important. And Rebecca mentioned one that I think is incredibly important is that there's actually been an incredibly low number of public sector strikes um, compared to just how it normally kind of trends year to year. And a an abnormally high number of large private sector strikes. Um, I think the last I checked, which was a couple of months ago, it was the most large private sector strike since 2012, which is certainly an uptick. Um, I think it's both, it is and it isn't what it's being billed as. Um, And I think that really the important part is exactly what Rebecca said. Even if the absolute numbers aren't there, the demands are different they're actually going on the offensive, which we've seen more recently from like the Chicago Teachers Union, from UTLA, from public sector workers, especially teachers, and to some extent in the private sector from nurses. Um, But you really haven't seen that from manufacturing workers who have been locked in a cycle of concessionary bargaining for decades now. And that, I think, is incredibly notable. And especially the tension between, the tension between, I think, you get, on the one hand, these kind of union accounts tweeting striketober, but when push comes to shove, they're still going to engage in the same kind of bargaining patterns that they have historically. And the problem is they raised expectations and then they weren't quite ready to actually deliver on them. And there's been a little bit of tension between what the rank and file expects and what union leadership is necessarily inclined to do. 
So we're going to loop back to that second point in a bit. But my next question was actually about the other thing that you mentioned, which is the two biggest potential striketober strikes didn't happen. And what that means is that they disappear out of the media narrative, right? And I think there's a lot that gets lost when we stop thinking of IATSE and the Kaiser Permanente strike, both of which would have been 50, 60,000 workers, um, because they got to where they got because they were strike ready and they got deals right at a deadline. So I'm going to toss this right back to you, Connor, but like, what do you think we need to take away from those moments too, from these big almost strikes? Well, that's one thing that I think is really interesting. And one of the things that I looked at um, a while ago in 2020, early 2020, was the number of averted hospital strikes, where there was a strike deadline even set, but then a tentative agreement basically pulled it off the table at the last minute. And at one point, there was a potential strike involving about 15,000 healthcare workers in Washington in January of 2020. So there are a lot of these points where, depending on what you measure the purpose of striking as, there are a lot of even if it doesn't get to a strike, being ready to use that and being able to make the threat that you will deliver on it does get agreements. With the IATSE one, I think more than all the other ones, it's a little bit interesting because it disappeared from the media narrative. So there's no longer any media attention attention on it. But, and I don't have firsthand knowledge of this, I would wager that there is some serious, intense discussions going on within IATSE because the deal was so controversial. And yeah a majority of the members actually voted against it, but it was only approved because of a delegate system that they have for approving tentative agreements. So, you know, that's interesting because the the really interesting knock-on effects of that agreement are now no longer getting media attention. Right, right. And there was a lot of social media attention, particularly to that one. I don't know, Becky, if you have enough. Yeah, I think um, Connor really described well the importance of a credible strike threat. And um, we saw that. And I think it's very difficult for people who don't have familiarity with how bargaining tends to work to understand, you know, they heard all this buzz about an IATSE strike. And then what do you mean there's not a strike? And actually, it's very typical for I think they actually got their agreement, you know, a day or two before the deadline. That's early. They, you know, often go a few hours past the deadline, they'll bargain until midnight and keep going. Um, But I think uh, the credible strike threat is what uh, leads to a much, much stronger contract. And sometimes the workers don't have to go on strike. And I also think we see in order to get workers to be willing to go on strike, they need to have very high uh, expectations and demands. And the messy reality of bargaining is you never win everything and their expectations aren't met. And that's why we see a lot of dissent in the case of the IATSE contract. All right. So moving moving on to our other buzzword, uh, the Great Resignation. Um, so to the extent that the Great Resignation is actually a thing, um, and we know it isn't the same as uh, you know a mass strike, as some commentators have implied, but uh, it does suggest that um, there is an unusually high uh, amount of workforce churn and uh, people are leaving their jobs for various reasons or feeling like they have to leave their jobs. So um, how does this affect organizing? Um, particularly if you're a labor organizer um, who, you know, works on campaigns that revolve around building long-term relationships with workers who are connected to a specific workplace or institution. Uh, Connor, you want to take that one? Sure. Um, 
I think that depending on the context, um, and it really does depend on the context, it can, to some degree, strengthen um, external organizing. Sorry, buzzword. External organizing being um, organizing new uh, unions. And, you know, I've actually had some discussions with uh, organizing campaigns over the past year or so where without even prompting, you know, the, the workers bring up, well, what are they going to do? They can't even fill the vacancies we've got now. What are they going to do to us? And so in a sense, it really does embolden workers in the face of really the boss's main threat for workers organizing, which is you're going to get fired, you're going to get retaliated against workers know quite realistically that they're not going to, they can't do anything. So I think on that end, um, it is to some degree helpful, but I think you're right that, you know, with this very kind of like labor market and churn and even higher than normal turnover, depending on the workplace, it can make it very, very difficult to actually build the kind of, um, kind of committee, the kind of majority that you need to actually win a union. And, you mentioned that like it's being referred to as a strike and to like a mass strike. And it, it gets, it, it's kind of a struggle because on the one hand, you know, it's amazing to see workers exercising the leverage they have within the labor market right now. But at the same time, it's very individualized. It's very fleeting and it doesn't necessarily make us more powerful in the long run. And so the question that I haven't been able to figure out is how do we actually turn this into something that makes us more powerful when the labor market starts to settle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, I think that's all really uh, makes makes a lot of sense. And I think one of the challenges we're seeing right now is that uh, in a lot of uh, jobs in places like manufacturing, the wages have not necessarily kept up, especially for newer workers. Even, especially if they're two-tier wage systems, but even if there aren't. But the benefits are great. And we have these workers that aren't quitting. They're willing to stay and fight because they have good health insurance and they still have a pension. And um, so they won't walk across the street for that job that might pay more or might pay uh, the same. Uh, they don't They don't want to quit. They want to stay and fight. Uh, but that's a real tension, right? So we're seeing in some of these manufacturing fights where workers are saying, you know, I could get paid almost as much or, or the same amount working at an Amazon warehouse. But they also, you know, they took this job because it gave them long-term economic security. Um, and if that is threatened, they um, they are, are willing to do something. I also think uh, what we're seeing is this fight over, I'm sure Sarah has uh, more to say about this, but this fight over time, right? And so workers that are being given unbelievable amounts of mandatory overtime, no days off and realizing, you know, maybe they need to get that in their contracts if they have a collective bargaining agreement. And if they don't, they need to organize around that and say, you know, we have a right to weekends. We have a right to predictable and reasonable schedules. Yeah, the time question is my favorite question for a lot of reasons. And it was really striking to see, again, the similarity between the demands at like Kellogg and Nabisco and Frito-Lay and IATSE, on the other hand, and the hospitals, on the other hand, right? I've got three hands now. Um, Because you watch these threads, you know, filling through everywhere. And it's also a constant with teachers, right, who are constantly doing work at home over time that doesn't get counted as overtime at all because they're not hourly workers. Um, so, but following from this, sticking with quitting for a minute, um, because it's really been hard to know why people are quitting. We don't have good data. It would be very hard to do a 
a representative national survey of people quitting their jobs, but there is some data. There are some surveys. Um, wanted to see what either of you have seen that's worth bringing up. Connor, you and I have talked about this before off of uh, Zoom, so I'm going to throw this one to you first. Yeah, you know, I think that one of the struggles is that a lot of the data that is out there is generated by like HR businesses and that kind of thing. So the questions they're asking and what their interest is, is very different than what ours is. Um, There are potentially some different survey sources that are regular surveys that the data could be analyzed to try to at least get some kind of indicators. Um, There are, at least on the state level, I know that, and I'm going to forget the name of the actual um, policy institute that does it, but there's one in California that runs a just kind of monthly survey uh, with pretty much standard questions. And it does ask a lot about jobs. And since the pandemic, it's been asking about remote work, you know, job issues. Um, It also asks about unions. Do you want to join a union? Uh, Do you belong to a union? So there are potentially some, at least from a survey data perspective, there are potentially things that are out there that could at least give us some kind of indication. But realistically, it's very difficult to figure out the why of it. Um, in any kind of systematic way. And it's it's hard to even kind of look at the labor stats and figure out exactly where this is happening, because a lot of the narrative that I see, at least, seems to be revolving around more kind of like white collar professional work and the turnover there. Um, and realistically, it doesn't actually seem from the numbers that that's where most of it is happening. And so even figuring out where all of this is happening is a little bit trickier than one would think it should be. Um, So I think that these are things that will probably get resolved, but I don't know that really they've, I certainly haven't seen anything that really concretely resolves it. But I do think that the one thing that I would say that I think is different than what um, is in the typical media narrative is that it really does seem to be more um, professional, but professional as in nurses and teachers um, and waged workers more so than, you know, white collar, um, white collar kind of like upwardly mobile workers. Yeah. I'll just add that the only, uh, additional data that I've seen that, that is probably worth mentioning is the age category and that it's older. Mm. The people that are quitting and, and really quitting, not going to other jobs are older. And, um, and my, my hunch would be that they're really truly retiring because everybody is well aware of, um, age discrimination. So if you're in your fifties or sixties, you're not confident about finding a new job. You wouldn't quit a job, uh, a good job that you had necessarily. And I think this is, uh, the, you know, people realizing that, uh, it's not worth it, whether the money's not worth it, the life and death, uh, scenario of, uh, employers not taking COVID uh, precautions seriously, um, whatever it is, it's it's no longer worth it. I don't have to do this. Maybe you know people who were uh, working part time jobs as something like a school bus driver for a, a bit of, of additional spending money have decided that uh, they can live without a bit of additional spending money. So I think um, that seems to be the situation that the people who are really quitting and not taking other jobs are the older uh, older workers. And one concerning maybe concerning, and it's a very small data point uh, from Pennsylvania, is that at the same time that there have been a lot of resignations from public schools, cyber charters have been hiring left and right. I mean, they've been enormously expanding their operations. And 
it's difficult because on the one hand, these cyber charters from an educational perspective are useless. Um, and, you know, obviously expansion of charters is nothing that we should be happy about. But workers are put in a position where they have a public school that isn't taking COVID seriously, and they've got to figure out a way to stay safe and keep a roof over their head. So I think that that's um, another aspect of it, at least that I've seen in Pennsylvania that, you know, has been really kind of a little bit concerning. As I was preparing to ask this next question, I realized that like we had gone through so many questions without asking asking specifically about the pandemic. But now that we've brought up the pandemic, let me <laughs> ask the first pandemic-related question. Um, so as, as some of you noted earlier, um, we've seen uh, the pandemic deepen a lot of the longstanding inequities facing workers in a lot of these so-called frontline uh, positions, um, a lot of them in service and care sectors, right? Um, um, so I was going to ask if, based on your observations, have you seen any particular occupations or industries that you think have been fundamentally changed in the long term uh, by the pandemic? And um, how does how does organizing factor into that? positively or negatively? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, it's sort of cliche to say every job has been changed. And I think, you know, we, we can certainly make that case. Um, but I think some some sectors have changed more than others. I think healthcare is a huge one where we saw this uh, healthcare sector where we both had, you know, workers at the, at the previous peak of COVID working unbelievable hours and, you know, marks piled high and just unbelievable stress on these workers. And then other healthcare workers getting laid off because the profitable uh, set of procedures that keep hospitals open uh, were not happening at the, at the peak of COVID and, and rural hospitals closing are under, under threat of closure. So you sort of see this um, bizarre healthcare system that uh, really doesn't do any of the things a healthcare system needs to do. Um, burning out workers and laying off workers at the same time, and it's it's just been it's just been a, a, cra- a crazy situation. And and what we're seeing now is um, a healthcare system where uh, nurses don't want to work for the under the circumstances that employers are offering them. Um, and so they're quitting. Many of them are becoming travel nurses. Um, and then their uh, workplaces are short staffed and need more travel nurses. And there's a sort of um, race to the top with pay for travel nurses where permanent nurses who actually know the communities they're in, know the other workers in their hospitals, know the patient population are uh, getting more and more stretched as they have to adapt to work with travel nurses. And then for each nurse that feels it's become too much, the temptation to go make, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight thousand dollars a week as a travel nurse becomes greater. And so um, it's it's a really, really uh, extreme situation that's completely um, unsustainable if we want sort of a healthy population as well as uh, a healthy workplace. And of course, one of the things that travel nurses do is fill in when there's a strike. <clears throat> Connor? <laughs> you know, I, I'm not sure if I would categorize it as a fundamental change, but I think that there's a looming and under-examined crisis in education, which is going to just mount over the next year um, and or two. And how it's navigated is... Um, going to be very different depending on the political situations in individual states. And in some cases, it's probably going to have pretty horrifying outcomes. Um, One of the things that has been looming for years nationwide 
uh, in public education is just a looming teacher shortage because there's just been a decline, uh, declining enrollment in teacher preparation programs, uh, which of course there is because there's been a decades long war on public education and slashing pensions and you know demonizing teachers. So the reality is that this was kind of a long-term problem that the COVID pandemic basically accelerated the, accelerated the timetable enormously. And you have situations where the little time that teachers do have built within their day is getting lost because you can't find substitutes, you have vacancies, you need classes covered, and it's simply impossible to do it within, you know, within a day. I mean, teachers are just completely without time and it's not going to get better because you can't just get teachers out of nowhere. And so what I think what I'm afraid is going to be the outcome is, depending on the political situation, a push toward charterization, um, a push toward uh, relaxing credentialing standards, which will, you know, in the long term, probably lower uh, teachers' wages, um, and or just piling more students into classes, um, which is already a trend that a lot of uh, teachers' unions have been struggling to fight. So it's it's masked a little bit because schools are just in survival mode right now, but the long-term ramifications of this are going to create a enormous crisis in public education that I frankly don't know if there's the political will to actually get through it in a way that's positive for public education or for students. Yeah. It's been really frustrating to me personally. Um, I spent a lot of time screaming at my computer last year. Um, the way that teachers were just being blamed for schools being closed because of course the schools weren't closed. The teachers are just all teaching from home. Um, and there was a lot of blaming teachers from otherwise supposed allies, which is my least favorite genre of article is I'm a supporter of teachers unions, but they need to get back to work. Um, and teachers and nurses again, are, end up being very similar um, in terms of the public attitude towards them where it can turn very sour very quickly um, you know, you get sort of lionized as like these wonderful, caring angels. And then the flip side is you greedy, uncaring jerk. How dare you, you know, want to not die. Um, we haven't seen, as we were noting, a lot of teacher strikes, especially relative to the previous, you know, eight years. We have, however, seen a lot of nurses strikes. And one of the things related to something that Connor said earlier is that the BLS doesn't keep or doesn't report numbers for strikes that are under a thousand workers. And a lot of these hospital strikes have been 700, 800 workers, including the nurses at St. Vincent, who are still on strike. Um, about nine months they've been out in Worcester, Massachusetts. Um, and so, yeah, I just wanted to spend like another, you know, quick minute on the specifics of sort of hospital strikes and what that means in a pandemic. Again, we're looking at another wave of this thing. And a lot of the nurses that I've talked to who have been on strike are, are literally going on strike because they cannot work in these conditions anymore. And those conditions are about to get worse again. Yeah, I think, um, I hope Connor will talk about the Buffalo strike, which was a phenomenally successful uh, strike and a huge win. But I'll just say in terms of the St. Vincent strike and in terms of nurses strikes more generally, there's a few really interesting things going on. You know, nurses have been saying for decades at this point that staffing is everything. In most cases, nurses have decent pay and they're not going on strike over pay. They're going on strike over patient care and staffing. And the other thing that 
is happening is that nurses can get part-time or full-time jobs uh, anywhere else, which means they can stay out on strike. So the St. Vincent nurses, uh, they're on strike and they're doing shifts on the picket line and they're working in other local hospitals. Um, And so they actually have a lot of stamina to, you know, last one day longer than, than the boss um, on these strikes. They uh, are able to stay out. This is not like some of these manufacturing strikes where, um, if people need another source of income, they're driving for Uber or taking very, very low wage jobs. These nurses can go get pretty, pretty well paid jobs elsewhere to, you know, sustain them for an extended stay on the picket line. Even in winter in Massachusetts. Yeah, you know. Or Buffalo. Yeah, well, in, in Buffalo, and I'm not going to promise this is my only Buffalo tangent, but it's going to be one. Um, it's actually not that cold. It just snows a lot. It's the difference between the two. Okay. Um, so, you know, I, I think that what was really interesting in the Buffalo strike, um, one is that unlike a lot of these strikes, it was a industrial strike. It was the CWA, which really doesn't necessarily represent that many healthcare workers, um, represents uh, both Kaleida Health, which is the largest healthcare provider in Western New York, and also um, Catholic Health. Um, and so they represent wall to wall. It's not just RNs, it's RNs, it's LPNs, it's techs, it's everyone. And so they had everyone in um, Mercy Hospital out on strike at once. And so it was incredibly difficult for the hospital to stay afloat because they were trying to find replacements for everyone. Um, And so there was an enormous amount of leverage in that. But I think that what was really striking, and I interviewed a lot of of, uh, different workers in the hospital uh, for the nation, uh, for a piece I did for the nation, but every single person I spoke to, and I spoke to people from I think at least five different classifications. Um, Every single person said it was about patient care. It was about time. It was about reasonable workloads that allow them to take care of their patients. It wasn't even necessarily about the wages, though certainly for the lowest paid workers, there's a problem with, you know, a rapidly gentrifying city. You've got low wage workers in a hospital making 13 bucks to start at best. Um, there certainly was issues with pay with pay for the lowest paid workers, but it really was just reasonable workloads, reasonable patient uh, ratios. And they were actually able to win um, enforceable, contractually enforceable um, uh, patient uh, pay, uh, patient ratios, which the new New York law that was very um, widely heralded actually really is a little bit toothless on that front. Um, and so they were able to actually get something that is better than the New York law that was just passed uh, over the summer. So it really was an incredible strike. And um, just in the level of community support they built, I was in Buffalo a couple of times uh, right before and um, well, just right before the strike. And even, you know, the weeks prior, you would go down some of these neighborhoods in North Buffalo and every other house said, I support, you know, uh, Catholic health nurses. So it was a really well executed strike that was a really transformative contract for the workers in uh, in that those hospitals. All right. So 
Um, I have a small window <laughs> before my cat uh, just Michelle's takes over cat the Zoom question. call. Yeah, um, but uh, I'm going to try to power through this. Okay, um, so this goes back to actually something uh, Becky was saying earlier about um, sort of the paradox of having healthcare workers both burning out and being laid off. Um, so earlier in the pandemic, we saw these two diverging labor narratives emerge, and one was that workers who are considered essential were being forced to work in unsafe conditions, healthcare workers or Amazon warehouse workers or whatever. And then the other one was that you had workers being indefinitely laid off and facing long-term unemployment and all of the hazards that come along with that, including losing their homes, losing healthcare, et cetera. And of course, in the middle of a pandemic, the stakes are that much higher. Um, so working might kill you and not working might also kill you. So um, uh, I don't know if you had any just broader thoughts about um, this, these patterns and what it tells us about the level of precarity that uh, working class people are facing in their day-to-day -day lives, whether they are, you know, employed or not. And, you know, for all the talk about workers having more leverage, it really seems like um, <laughs> they are fundamentally constrained in a lot of ways, uh, even if they're jobless. So. Yeah, I think I think that's right. And I think, you know, we've seen with the sort of legislative wrangling that's gone on that, you know, there's still no social safety net, there's no political will to uh, create a social safety net, whether we're talking about people who are unemployed or who need supports to work like uh, child care and elder care. Um, so we, you know, we live in a country without a basic social safety net. And so people have to either make enough or get job tied benefits that tie them to their employer to really get anywhere. I mean, we're seeing this sort of uh, economic precarity and then piled on top of this life and death precarity. And the one thing that is, you know, maybe sometimes uh, inspiring people to organize is that, you know, they might have in a general sense, maybe realize their boss didn't care about them, although not always. Sometimes there's an over-identification as, as uh, those who read Sarah's book know. But um, they now have seen in, you know, maybe sharper than ever that the boss doesn't care if they die. So we saw it in the pandemic with whether we're talking about nursing home workers or uh, cooks in restaurants or uh, meat processing workers that they were dying and their bosses didn't care. But we're also seeing it now in things that are not directly related to the pandemic. So um, the death on the set of an Alec Baldwin movie, I think almost caused that uh, contract to be voted down at the very last minute because people said, hey, you know, this was a set where there was active union busting. And as a result, it was not a safe workplace. Um, and I would say the same thing with the workers who died um, in their workplace in the recent tornadoes at the candle factory and the Amazon delivery hub, right? And truly, your boss does not care if you die. And does that inspire you to quit or to organize? Um, and so it's not just this sort of economic precarity that maybe you can compartmentalize somewhere else and is it really my boss's fault if I can't pay my rent but um, you're actually uh, at risk of dying in order for the boss to make a buck and if you haven't read Sarah's book work won't love you back <laughs> I didn't pay them to do this yeah. work won't love you back the subtitle could be your boss doesn't care if you die um, I mean realistically that, that kind of really is it. And I, I think back to, there were a lot of stories about this earlier in the pandemic, uh, especially with meatpacking and poultry facilities. Um, and I actually did a story about one that had a decertification vote in uh, Central California, um, where 
I mean, it was it was so bad that the facility was actually uh, shut down by the attorney general, uh, Xavier Bacara, shortly before he became um, or before he was confirmed uh, for the cabinet. So, I mean, these are incredibly uh, poor conditions. And um, especially in a lot of these poultry facilities, we're talking about communities that are um, predominantly uh, immigrants. Uh, they very purposefully are immigrants from different communities that may not speak the same language. Uh, it was primarily Bengali and um, Mexican immigrants, but it was a mixture of Mexican immigrants, including a lot of um, immigrants from Oaxaca that didn't necessarily speak Spanish most comfortably. So they tried to keep the workforce from actually communicating with each other effectively, which makes it very difficult to organize. I mean, the NLRB notices for the decertification election, I think were posted in about five different languages. Um, and so we're talking about a lot of these facilities that are primarily incredibly, um, incredibly vulnerable uh, populations of workers. They're often located in rural communities, and a lot of the facilities in Pennsylvania are either in rural Pennsylvania or in deindustrialized areas like the Scranton Wilkes-Barre area, where there aren't a ton of jobs. You don't necessarily have options. And so on the one hand, you have an employer that literally just doesn't care if you die. But on the other hand, you have to keep a roof over your head and there just aren't other options. Um, and that was particularly pronounced early on in the pandemic when anyone that was a reasonably sane employer or it was coerced into doing it moved to remote work if they could or just shut down. And there weren't options for a lot of these people. So it's I think that I think that that's definitely leading, I hope, to a fundamental shift in how people to rela relate to their employers um, and maybe disabusing them of the notion that work can love them back. But I think that the struggle is that that doesn't necessarily lead to the kind of organization that we would like, because the response to that in um, that plant in uh, California was to actually decertify their union. That is obviously not a, a good sign for organized labor. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to briefly touch on these, the sort of work from home question too, because that is sort of the third leg of the stool, right? We either had people who were continuing to do the same job. It just got more dangerous or people who got laid off or people whose jobs suddenly got squished into their living room. Um, we've already talked a little bit about the effect this had on teachers, but this was also the year that everybody discovered that housework and care work are still work. Um, and that briefly at least had an effect on policy, although who knows if any child tax credit will continue to be in the Build Back Better thing. Um, but Becky, I know you probably have thoughts on all of this. Yeah, I think um, the the childcare thing is, is interesting because, again, people have this um, intense uh, experience and this realization of something that they likely should have realized earlier, but they can't translate it into the need for systemic change, or if they can sort of translate it, 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 they, they can't organize and enact it in any, in any sort of consequential way. So I think that's, that's, uh, that's, uh, sort of, uh, an ongoing issue. I also think in terms of the remote work thing, we're going to see, uh, a difference, uh, between workers who have more leverage and workers who don't. So we're already seeing, you know, all the articles about, uh, the increased surveillance of people who are working from home, whether you're logging keystrokes or making them work on camera. Um, and we're seeing, you know, different uh, arguments about return to the office uh, 
policies. And so some of the big tech companies that see themselves as in a war for talent where they have to provide the most perks in order to hire the best uh, highly paid engineers, they're uh, competing uh, to be the most uh, open to people working remotely. And then other kinds of jobs where bosses fundamentally don't trust the workers and they believe, and they may, they may not be right, but they believe they can still hire enough people uh, that will come to the office. And that remains to be seen depending uh, on if the labor market remains really tight. I think we're going to see a big, uh, big impact here of, of unions where we're seeing in some sectors that are really white collar, like uh, media workers, where they are negotiating hard over return to the office policies and non-union workers in those some sectors are going to say, you know, I might have gotten a lot more uh, of what I wanted, especially the ability to work from home if I did have a union and a collective bargaining agreement. One of the things that I've seen most strongly emphasized actually by the News Guild is that return to work uh, is a mandatory subject of bargaining, and they have hammered that point home. And I think that that realistically is something that a lot of unions, frankly, I'm not sure if they've utilized that leverage um, quite, a, uh, quite effectively enough. Um, and I th- but I think it is an incredible um, tool that labor has that also, you know, can really, um, really, I think, claw back potentially a little bit more control over the working conditions that a lot of the workers face. Because I know that kind of the question of is work from home better? Is it worse? You're then using your own kind of like infrastructure to make the bosses kind of things. But I mean, I always, well, I'm not going to get into a tangent about industrial England, but basically, you know, (laughs) I think that I think that there is um, some level of power that's clawed back by having a little bit more control over your own work environment. And I think that's shown in how reluctant employers are to concede that. And so I think that some unions like the News Guild are really, really pushing that point home and using what little leverage unions really have in current uh, labor law to um, really effective advantage. Um, And I will say, I am personally a person who some days I can work from home, some days I can't. So, uh, but I think that everyone should at least have that option. Yeah. Um, So now that we've uh, thrown a big wet towel over uh, Striketober and (laughs) the Great Resignation, uh, we should talk about some uh, some some optimistic things on the organizing front. So um, I just wanted to uh, note that we saw two uh, important union votes um, happening or coming up. Uh, so first there was uh, the win, uh, an unprecedented win at the Starbucks in Buffalo. Um, and then there is the news that there will be a redo of the Amazon vote um, that failed in Bessemer, Alabama. So um Either of you, can we read anything out of these developments about organizing amid the pandemic, even though we know that, you know, a single union vote is just one data point? Uh, and Connor, this is your cue to go on yet another Buffalo tangent. <laughs> oh, boy. You don't know what you're asking. Um, so I think um, I, I know that I'm, I'm probably a little bit more optimistic uh, in some ways about this than some folks, um, but at least on the Starbucks front. I am very, very interested in what Workers United is doing. And quite frankly, candidly, I did not expect it from, um, from them because, you know, they're, they're a smaller union and they historically, at least in recent history, have not engaged in this kind of ambitious organizing. So 
the plan appears to be to basically dig in in a couple of regional markets, organize enough stores that it's going to be incredibly difficult for the employer to just try to shut down a unionized location and bargain toward master agreements. And realistically, it looks like a siege strategy to just wear Starbucks down. Um, And I would assume that the long-term goal is to get some kind of um, agreement with Starbucks uh, for organizing Starbucks nationally, which at a certain point, depending on, you know, how things progress, Starbucks may be put in a position where it seems like a better choice to just, you know, cave in. Um, Because the, the ability of employers to resist is not limitless. And I think that that's something that we often lose sight of. As much as it seems like they have enormous resources, they have finite resources. Um, And the struggle really is going to be, can they get a first contract? That's going to be the struggle. And um, I'm also concerned that that's also the part that the media so often fails to cover because a union vote is exciting, but realistically, so many unions that are so many workers that vote for a union couple of laters end up decertifying the union because they've just been ground into um, into submission from uh, the employer stall tactics. So I think there's something really interesting happening with Starbucks. I'm a little bit, and I, I, I don't want to take anything away from the workers in Bessemer or from RWDSU, but historically speaking, reruns don't don't really deliver different results. And I think it's important to keep in mind that the span of time between the election and the rerun is going to be significant. And that particular facility struggles with turnover. The They're going to be talking about an almost entirely new pool of voters by the time they get to an election that they haven't had conversations with necessarily. So it's going to be incredibly tough. And so I don't necessarily... I think it's good the NLRB recognized that Amazon engaged in union busting, but I'm not 100% convinced that it will deliver different results as much as I hope that it does. Yeah, I think that what we see in both of these cases, the sort of success in Starbucks and the ongoing struggle uh, at Amazon in Alabama is um, what, you know, some of us say a lot, the brokenness of the National Labor Relations Board process and the brokenness of labor law and how, um, even though it's still the law of the land to uh, be in favor of collective bargaining, and and the reality is that it's almost impossible to organize a union because it's uh, the balance is tipped so much in favor of employers. And I think the Starbucks case shows us the sort of the one of the tensions is that it's much easier. It's not easy at all, but it is easier to organize a small shop um, because to win an NLRB election, you have to have repeated one-on-one conversations with every single worker, and you need to be absolutely confident of how each worker is going to vote and you need to count and count and count again and make sure you have all the votes. And when you have a 5,000 worker workplace like the Amazon warehouse in Bessemer to have repeated one-on-one conversations where you have no legal access to these workers in the workplace, you would need to do it offsite, whether it's in their homes or asking them to come and meet you somewhere in their free time. It's very, very difficult to have multiple one-on-ones and get a good hard assessment of that many workers to be confident of being able to to win uh, an election. Yeah. 
Especially when there's a lockdown and a pandemic happening. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and now we've got Omicron. It's great. Um, so we do have one audience question. Jackie Germain asks, you guys mentioned seeing more bargaining around time and work conditions in the midst of COVID, but are there any other contract demands that have become more popular or that you'd estimate might become more popular or that you hope will become more popular, especially given newer crises that working people might start to feel like the weather disasters during a work shift, return to office policies, higher concentration of gig and contract workers, et cetera. Yeah, I think those are actually great examples. I think there's some things that were, you know, we uh, can think about things that are uh, enshrined in employer policies uh, rather than the collective bargaining agreement and employer policies can be changed unilaterally. So some things that are fairly basic, like access to PPE, I don't know that uh, every every contract uh, in, uh, thought about PPE, especially outside of healthcare. But I think now, uh, if you're a grocery worker, for example, you would want uh, that to be enshrined and enforceable in your in your contract. Um, and I do think, uh, you know, uh, work from home policies and even allowances. So we've seen in some recently settled contracts support for uh, whether it's uh, you know your computer or your home office setup, uh, some kind of allowance and. Uh, you know, understanding uh, how much money employers are going to save by not uh, paying rent on on large amounts of office space. So I think uh, depending on the kind of work, we're already seeing some signs and we can expect to see a lot more. I'd say health and safety is a, is a huge one. Yeah, health and safety, I think, is definitely a huge one. One thing I would I would say about the kind of emphasis on time is to kind of think about it expansively as both time within work, which strikes directly at control of, uh, control of the flow of work, control of the pace of work, which I think is a really neglected aspect of labor demands that was really kind of set aside. I, I could go off on a thing about the Treaty of Detroit, and I know Sarah could as well. Um, My favorite but, subject. But, you know, that was really kind of set aside as one of kind of labor's core demands the way it used to be. Um, in favor of kind of wages and, you know, bread and butter issues. And I think that I see control of the pace of work, which really strikes more at control of the workplace in some kind of fundamental power relations. Um, I see that as a really key part, but then also just time away from work. Um, and I can see that uh, stretching into um, expanded leave, um, bargaining for, you know, paid family leave. Um, things like this, uh, especially as workers see that the federal government isn't delivering on things like paid family leave, I could see this really kind of getting into um, contract demands, um, even more so than normal kind of traditional wage and hours issues. So, you know, I think that that's one aspect. Um, I also think that just generally speaking, um, I don't know really how to kind of capture this, but I think that you you have to kind of look at a collective bargaining agreement as kind of a codification of power relationships between ma management and labor. Um, it kind of freezes those to some extent power relationships in time for the extent of the contract. And you can kind of view like the expiration of a contract and the threat of a strike is kind of a rupture in the, that kind of relationship, which can ultimately be to workers' advantage or disadvantage. And I think that what I really see is that workers are thinking more about power because they felt so powerless. Even union workers have often felt so powerless throughout the pandemic. And so I think that there is a consciousness of that to a greater extent than you would have seen prior to the pandemic, because 
I think that really the thing that has struck me more than anything is the degree to which the pandemic has made every worker to some extent feel powerless in their workplace. Um, related because somebody just asked a question about workplace democracy and employee ownership. Um, and because Connor already brought up the Treaty of Detroit, I just wanted to toss that one in at the tail end of that and, and add that little caveat to this question. Um, are we, could we be in a moment where we start to think more about these questions that have basically been off the table, particularly in the private sector for a really long time? You know, I, for my part, um, if you ask me this question in a couple of weeks, I might give a different answer, but I'm in a mood to just burn it down. Uh, so <laughs> especially after the, uh, you know, the, the scraps of the PRO Act that managed to get into the Build Back uh, Better bill um, are now off the table. So we have once again, for I don't know how many times in nearly 70 years, failed at reforming labor law. Um, I believe it's been introduced under every single Democratic presidency and gone nowhere. At this point, we really kind of have to question the value of working within the NLRA and, you know, working through the NLRB. And I think that realistically to transform anything in a really fundamental way, um, speaking to questions of like workplace democracy and employee ownership, we need to basically take that perspective that ultimately we need to we, we need to stop caring about protecting a system that's fundamentally broken in which simply will not be reformed. Um, we're not going to get 60 Democratic senators. That's not happening. And even if we do, that's still not going to deliver labor law reform because it didn't with EFCA. And so I think that we really need to figure out ways uh, to push this kind of envelope um, without quite as much regard for the NLRA um, and, you know, I think that there's a lot of avenues um, on the state level to be able to do that because there are, uh, and I'm going to give California a shout out, um, there are a lot of pro, you know, pro-labor um, legislators on the state level that are very smart, very effective, and can get things across the finish line that would never get across the finish line federally. And so I think that if they have a little bit more free hand to be able to legislate pro-worker um, labor law, Ultimately, I think that's to the entire movement's benefit. And I really, like, if folks haven't looked at it, like the work Lorena Gonzalez is doing in California is, she is by far, I think, my the single most effective pro-labor state legislator in the country. Yeah, I, I, can't, I can't argue uh, with that. Um, I'll just say in terms of uh, workplace democracy and em employee ownership, I think, you know, workplace democracy increases when uh, there's a collective bargaining agreement, but it's it's still not a democracy um, in terms of true employee ownership. Um, I don't think you're going to bargain that. And um, I think, you know, it's even very rare to organize and, and win it through sort of uh, seizing power. I think, you know, People might like to think about the example of Republic Windows, but it's the outlier and most uh, employee-owned uh, organizations were either founded as co-ops, a, a group of you know like-minded individuals, or there's a whole. So I have colleagues who um, do a lot of work on employee ownership, and uh, there's a large a large number of uh, the worker-owned businesses were founded by sort of um, uh, 
founders who don't think of themselves as entrepreneurs and come out of a sort of 60s, 70s ethos where they maybe never expected to be business owners. And when it gets time for retirement, they explore uh, employee ownership rather than um, rather than sort of selling to a big uh, multinational conglomerate. Um, But they're not doing that because the workers have organized and sort of, uh, you know, kidnapped the boss and forced them to do that. Much as we'd like it. Um, So here's another question um, about education and uh, employee leverage. So um, Audra King asks, I teach at a public university and we are currently in negotiations for a faculty contract. Unsurprisingly, the system office is taking advantage of the pandemic to attempt to railroad employees. Their initial contract proposal was so far from the norm. My cat really hates that. Yeah. Um, their initial contract proposal was so far from the norm that most of us were shocked by their audacity. I'm wondering if this has been something you've seen on a larger scale. Have many employers attempted to take advantage of pandemic conditions to push through their policies? We're all four of us former academic, former or current academic union members, aren't we? Yeah, I mean, I think the shock doctrine is real, and it's real in numerous ways, including at the bargaining table. So um, there's a moment when workers may be disorganized because they are not seeing as much of each other, or they may be distracted by, you know, death and disease and childcare needs and everything else that's going on around them. And so I think there are a lot of cases when employers are seeing this as um, a huge opportunity to uh, make slashing cuts to undermine worker power. There's um, massive reorganization. I know Connor probably knows more of the whole higher ed system in the state of Pennsylvania, um, threatening uh, many, many academic workers' jobs. Um, And we're absolutely seeing this as uh, what employers think of as as an opportunity to get things they wanted all along. Yeah, in Pennsylvania, they're uh, pushing forward consolidation of the state um, state system of higher education, which is really um, it, it's it's the only affordable public option um, for in-state uh, residents. Because even though schools like Penn State, like Temple, like Pitt are technically public-ish, they have in just inordinately high tuition. They're totally inaccessible to. Um, the working class in Pennsylvania. And so historically, the working class in Pennsylvania has gone to places like Lockhaven. You know, they've gone to places like Westchester. uh, They've gone to places like Indiana University of Pennsylvania. Um, And these are all places that are getting consolidated. They're getting their, you know, budgets slashed. And it realistically is part of a campaign that the state legislature has been undertaking for years now but at this point, it's basically with the collaboration of both parties. Um, and so there's this kind of consensus on both sides that they need to gut one of the one of the incredible public goods that uh, Pennsylvania has and make education far less accessible uh, to, you know, uh, working families in Pennsylvania. So, you know, I. I I think Rebecca probably knows more more about this picture than I do since I've been, you know, out of uh, academia full in for uh, quite a few years now. But even with, you know, in 2015, when I was involved in a union fight at University of Missouri, I mean, higher education had been starved and starved and starved and starved, no matter what the state was for years and years. And of course, it just turned into hiking tuition. And 
realistically, I don't see the pandemic um, changing that in a positive way. I think if anything, it's going to accelerate it. Um, and realistically, I think it's just going to put higher education more and more out of reach for a lot of people. So Becky, we wanted to toss back to you because Rutgers actually did have some semi-positive outcomes with some of this. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that uh, the pandemic experience has uh, brought home, I think, to higher ed workers is how much they have in common and how it serves nobody when uh, faculty, especially tenure track faculty, set themselves aside from or above uh, other higher ed workers. And so at Rutgers, uh, one of the really positive things we've we've done is build a coalition of Rutgers unions, which is every kind of worker, uh, higher wage, lower wage, uh, faculty, non-faculty. Uh, tenured and tenure track and contingent faculty and understand that we're all in the same buildings facing the same health and safety uh, risks, but we're also um, dealing with uh, all of the uh, corporatization and, uh, you know, decline of any kind of shared governance and increase in managerial control. And the way to fight back is to do it together. And you'll get much further if you do it together. And we've really, we've really uh, worked hard. It's not easy. It's messy uh, on a day-to-day and uh, in, in, in the sort of day-to-day interactions, but it can build, it can build real power. We were able to work together to uh, uh, do a shared work uh, furlough program that, or a work share furlough program that uh, allowed us to, to save jobs and save the university money and, and keep our members pretty much whole. So um, it's created some opportunities to really build relationships among workers and in higher ed, those, those relationships had been sorely lacking. Yeah. Yeah. So we have a couple more questions. Um, question from Aaron on Connor's favorite subject, open bargaining, uh, <laughs> which yeah. Um, Aaron is part of the great resignation, but saw that COVID positively changed the contract negotiations at their old union, which is SEIU 10 to one in the city of Berkeley. Um, open bar- they pushed for open bargaining. COVID meant that bargaining happened via Zoom. So suddenly everyone in the whole community was able to attend the sessions. Um, and the question is, have you guys seen this in other contract negotiations? Have you participated in it? Um, and are there other ways that workers have been able to use COVID and Zoom similarly? So, yeah. um, <laughs> Both of your favorite yeah, subjects. Both eager to yeah. get in. Go yeah, open it. bargaining. Um, yeah, hi, Aaron. Uh, thanks for your question. I think that um, you know, there's a lot of buzz about open bargaining and a lot of people who believe in sort of rank and file unionism and union democracy have seen it as best practice, but it's very, very hard to pull off. It could be hard to get management to agree to it and it can be hard to get members to actually show up. And if you have, uh, if you've, you know, pushed hard to get open bargaining and your members are at home feeding their kids dinner, then um, you don't really build power that way. And what we've seen with the ability to have open bargaining on Zoom is all of a sudden, you know, in the case of the big union, UC contract for their uh, lecturers. They had hundreds of members um, and they're a statewide union. And so all of a sudden, workers across the state were able to get to know each other, to get on Zoom together and to see what management says at the bargaining table and what they think your jobs are compared to what they actually are and the disrespect often with which they treat the people doing the essential work uh, of their organization. And so I think it's been a huge opportunity. And I think in many cases, uh, it won't be possible to go back. That will become uh, a demand and an expectation. Yeah. You know, I think that, I I think that the, the, the aspect of open bargaining being um, incredibly difficult to accomplish 
is something that's important to emphasize up front because I wholeheartedly believe in it as an approach, but it also requires a really, really strong commitment and it requires a level of buy-in from uh, from the workers because like Rebecca mentioned, it can be a fight to even get it off the ground and you need to have workers that are committed to having that fight because if you're bickering over ground rules for a month and a half, it's very easy for workers to just say, look, let's just drop it and let's get started. We want to you know, make some progress. So it really takes a lot of preparation. Um, but I will say that having uh, actually started open bargaining um, in a couple of workplaces recently, um, it can be incredibly transformative and particularly, and this is my favorite part of it, um, if you have management teams that are prone to misbehavior, shall we say, it's a lot harder for them to do that when they've got their entire staff staring them down. And I found that uh, management, the, the energy in the room, the dynamic shifts immediately in a way that is really incredibly beneficial to workers. And the most important part of that is that, and I say this constantly, the most I'm going to say radicalizing, though, don't push that word too far in this context. The most radicalizing experience that a union member can have is to participate in bargaining because they see an entirely different side of their employer than they see in any other context. And also, if you do it right, they see that they actually have not enough power, but some power in their workplace. And so I think that when you have that many people in one room and they feel the power dynamic shift, that is an incredibly, um, incredibly useful tool that builds worker confidence and builds worker expectations. Um, I honestly think that every single, the goal should be open bargaining. Whether or not that can be accomplished in a given contract negotiation is a different question because it's you can't necessarily flip a switch and go from what's what I've heard referred to as black box bargaining, where it's entirely closed to, you know, a small group of people um, to completely open bargaining. But the trend should be toward opening it up, opening it up, opening it up, and to push for the maximum communication, transparency, openness that you can within that context with hopefully the end goal of just any member that wants to be there can be there. One last thing I would mention, um, and of course, Jane's uh, report on this is incredibly useful, and I've actually used that to prep for open bargaining myself, um, is that it does take a lot of discipline as well. It actually takes, in some ways, even more discipline than in traditional bargaining because you've basically, anything said at the table can, can be used against you as far as your table position or in the bargaining process. And so workers need to understand how it works and they need to understand that, you know, everyone has a role to play in what their role is. But the plus side is, even though it's difficult to do that kind of work to train them on that, then they know more about the process. Then they feel more empowered in the process. So we have one, uh, we have one more Q and a question, then we will, uh, and conclude with a couple of uh, final questions. Um, so Tejan Bakta asked, and this is this is above my pay grade because I only took one macro class. But um, what? <laughs> um, how do you think labor market changes over the next year, potentially related to interest rate increases, uh, will affect the current terrain for workers and organized labor? 
Uh, I'll I'll say maybe the cop-out answer, which is it's probably too soon to tell, but I think um, as far as um, I understand, you know, the Fed is not the Fed that it used to be and the Federal Reserve actually... Uh, the people uh, that are that are board members there have um, uh, more of an understanding about not maintaining a sort of stabilizing level of unemployment that might be five percent, but actually that you know people need jobs and full employment should be the goal. So I don't think uh, you know past practice of the of the Federal Reserve is necessarily the best predictor, but I think we really don't know. I don't think we can say the labor market has stabilized right now. We have um, you know, and if we're going to have another surge uh there's going to be another destabilizing uh moment uh yet yet another one connor i'm gonna pass on that one <laughs> <laughs> yeah i just want to note that um friend of the show david stein is a big nerd on the fed and full employment and i recommend following him in his work if you are if this is a question of interest to you michelle take it away all right, so um, back to more familiar terrain and my cat. Um, and your cat. Yes. Uh, in recent months, uh, we have seen tensions emerge in contract negotiations between union leaders and rank-and-file membership, uh, and we've touched on that at various points in this conversation. So we've seen members uh, tending to push for more militant action or for more ambitious demands than the leadership is willing to support. Um, we saw this with IATSE members, uh, you know, overwhelmingly voting in favor of a strike and then getting a kind of underwhelming agreement that the majority ended up voting against. So what does this tell us about the internal dynamics at large established unions today and what you think needs to change going forward. Michelle's cat has more ambitious demands. Yes. Like food. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think, I think a lot of um, observers and and activists in the, in these fights are uh, combining that trend of workers being really willing to vote down a contract that they, that is not good enough, even if it means prolonging a strike um, with the, uh, the, turnover in the Teamsters leadership and having a competitive election that was won by the the more insurgent uh, uh, candidate rather than the the longstanding power power brokers. And then, of course, the uh, UAW election and move to one member, one vote for uh, the leadership of the UAW. And understanding that, you know, you can you can perhaps uh, get get your hopes up in terms of democracy and workers getting involved. Um, I, I, I don't tend to think that it will be as rosy as some people hope, but I do think it's it's a positive trend. Right. People are getting more involved. People are willing to take a stand um, and, and question and question uh, if a contract really was the best contract or uh, hold their leaders to account in ways that I think increase engagement increase mobilization and increase organization uh, for hopefully for the long term. Yeah. You know, I could, I could talk for a while about the question of union democracy because I think it's a lot more complicated than it's usually presented to be. Um, And I frankly think that it is not as widespread a problem in the movement as it is portrayed to be though. I think that if you look at UAW, there's very clearly a significant problem, or at least within the past couple of decades, uh, within UAW, at least on the international level. So I think one thing I think is really incredibly interesting is that um, strikes giving our strike or strike tober started out as strike tober 
kind of almost began as like union branding. And then the workers started to believe it. And then they started pushing their own unions uh, past the point which uh, I think some of those union leaders were comfortable. And so it was kind of it was interesting that way. Um, I think that there is definitely a push because, I mean, without specific knowledge, I would suspect that BCTGM leadership, if they had their their choice, would not have necessarily chosen to strike at Kellogg or Nabisco um, and maybe would have chosen to settle before now. And they've been pushed by their uh, workers to continue the strike. And in their case, they've been relatively responsive to that. They've said that we're going to go the direction the workers say. Um, in UAW's case with John Deere, it was there was a lot more tension. And, and in IATSE's case, um, effectively, the system uh, led to a ratification over the objections of the majority of the membership. And so there is definitely a tension And I think that's a very interesting and hopefully useful tension. But there's one thing, and this gets more toward kind of the left political analysis of what that tension means. I wouldn't push it too far because militancy within the context of collective bargaining, and I think that collective bargaining in a lot of respects has been maybe purposefully depoliticized in a lot of ways into a really, especially in the private sector, economic question in the least political sense of the term. And so exercising militancy within that context does not necessarily translate into the kind of maybe more progressive politics or isn't an indicator of those politics as much as we'd like. So I think it creates the potential for that kind of shift. But there's just an element of caution that I think that folks should have in trying to kind of, uh, you know, forecast what this means for the movement. Um, and, you know, I think that we should be very specific about the situations in which there is a, you know, a disconnect between the rank and file and leadership and figure out why rather than, and I've seen this happen often, taking the worst example of the movement, which I would honestly say until recently would be UAW, and then generalizing that across the entire movement. Um, so it's it's an incredibly complicated and uh, question. I think that we could have probably a whole different discussion just about that. We should. I mean, Chris Brooks and I have been threatening for like, I don't know how many years um, to write an article about the sort of three-way Venn diagram of militancy from below um, democracy and progressive politics, because they just are not all the same thing the way they are often talked about being the same thing. Um, I mean, the history of a lot of rank and file strikes has been white workers going on wildcats when black workers were introduced into their workplaces. Um, and that's just one of my favorites. Um, so anyway, to wrap everything up, because I wanted to ask you all a big unanswerable question to end everything with, um, to return to the question of the great resignation, people have sort of talked about this is the anti-work movement and asked me, what would it take to have an actual anti-work movement? And I wanted to put that question to both of you. Um, The labor movement has for quite a long time, I blame Walter Ruther, embraced the idea that everyone wants to work, work is great, everyone needs a job, jobs give us meaning. But what if the moment right now is actually ripe for a return to a labor movement that thinks we should all work less? Shorter hours were a unifying demand of the labor movement not really all that long ago. Um, so how would we think about this and think about making such a thing happen? 
Yeah, I think um, it's a huge it's a huge question, and I think what we're seeing now is I would say that the the best path we can imagine to it are these arguments over time, and so bargaining over uh, mandatory overtime would be one, and these um, un inhumane, unreal uh, numbers of hours and and work days in a row that uh, workers in manufacturing especially have experienced. Um, But we're also seeing uh, these kind of war for talent, high-end, highly better paid uh, white-collar workplaces actually starting to say maybe we're going to have a four-day work week. So Vodio, the video uh, game company that... uh, got a voluntary union recognition uh i think yesterday they oh um, not only did they Yay. did they get a bargaining unit that um defies labor law because it includes employees and independent contractors but the one of their one of the things they want to codify in their collective bargaining agreement that they already have is a four-day work week um and i know that some other tech uh, companies have started to announce that so uh, i don't know that we'll see that in blue collar uh workplaces uh but uh we are starting to see that as something that's a reasonable demand that's winnable for at least some workers. Yeah, you know, yeah, on a on a slight tangent related to video games, because I've actually been thinking about the, and I think Activision workers are actually moving forward with a uh, organizing campaign. The amount of leverage exercised by game workers is enormous. I mean, the amount of pressure on these companies to get products to ship and the amount and that all gets shifted on to the workers and hundred hour weeks. Yeah. So, I mean, the amount of potential leverage um, they could exercise is amazing. They're going to have to do some outreach to the, to the gamer community. They're going to need to organize the gamers to make sure that they're, you know, um, not dealing with that problem, but um, good luck to them. Um but some of it's working, yeah. some of it's working. Yeah, I, 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 I'm optimistic. Um, I think that what it will take to make an anti-work movement a movement is organization. I mean, it's not organized. It, it isn't organized. It's, it, it is, there is no organization. It, there's no even kind of informal organization. There's no official organization. There's no institutional organization. And that doesn't need to really be that way because at various moments, you know, the the labor movement, often influenced, at least in the 1930s by the Communist Party, organized the unemployed. I mean, there's no reason that there couldn't be some push to organize, you know, the, you know, organize around uh, the anti-work movement. There's no reason it couldn't happen. And yet there seems to be a real lack of interest in pursuing that. Um, and I really, I, I don't know that I could really explain why other than it just doesn't seem to be something that I, I could put myself in the, in the shoes of any number of union leaders. And I honest to God, don't know if it even occurs to them to think of it. I don't even think it occurs to them. It's not even a question of lack of political willingness. It's that it is outside of their the outer limits of what they view as their wall. Um, And so I think that, you know, there's definitely something that can be done and there are historical precedents to do it, but it's not being done. And until it's done, it's not a movement. It's, it's a phenomenon. It's a trend, but it's not a movement. Uh, I remember Bill Fletcher, uh, 
telling uh, telling us at a different event. Uh, he had uh, repeatedly tried to tell people. Uh, he brought it to organizers. You know why why don't you organize the unemployed? And um, there would just be blank stares, like you know, um, to a person. So <laughs> uh, you're not the first person to bring that up, but uh, not a lot of takers out there. So I think that's a wrap. Um, thank you everyone for attending. Um, and of course, thank you so much to our two guests. Um, this will be Belabored episode 237. And that will be a wrap for the year. Uh, we will see we'll see you in 2022 when we are back in our regularly scheduled uh, programming. And, uh, and another reminder, um, you can keep us going and support our independent journalism for as little as $3 a month, and you will get a really cool gift if you go to patreon.com slash belabored. And don't forget to check out our archives at dissentmagazine.org and subscribe to Dissent. That's another great way to support us as well. And yeah, thank you so much, Becky and Connor. Um, this has been great. And yeah, thanks to everybody for coming. Thanks. Thank you. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.